You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. The investment world has lost a legend, but Charlie Munger's wit and wisdom will live on. His impact can be seen across a number of modern-day investment approaches, including our guests. We'll speak with two longtime Berkshire shareholders about what this means for Berkshire as a company and where they are now seeing opportunities. Plus, our economist says the Fed is done hiking and will start cutting rates. Bond market seems to agree today with a 10-year yield below 430. He tells us when, by how much, and what could derail that thesis. And it's all about the cloud and the consumer in today's earnings exchange, including one name already up 70% this year. I bet you can guess it, uh, but our trader is still a buyer. Before all of that, let's start with the markets, though, which are close to session highs after losing some steam earlier. Dom Chu with the latest. Dom? All right, so Kelly, green across the screen right now for the major indices. The Dow Industrial is now up triple digits, about 123 points to the upside, 35,539. The last trade for the blue chip index up one-third of 1%. It's a similar percentage gain for the S&P 500, now solidly above the 4,500 mark. 45.67 the last trade there, up about one quarter of 1%, 12 points to the upside. And the Nasdaq Composite, 14,312 the last trade there, up 30 points. Again, about one quarter of 1% gain there as well. So it's modest, but it continues this nice month that we've had in November for the stock market overall. Remember, one of the best months that we've seen overall in decades. So keep an eye on those markets. One other place I want to focus on, we talked about it yesterday, but we're going to put it up again today. The reason why is because gold prices continue to tick higher. It's not gangbusters. It's one-third of 1%. It may not seem like a lot, but at 2,046 per troy ounce for gold, we are now hovering near the highest levels of the year. And remember, I pointed out yesterday, it was August of 2020. Over here, that was in 2089 was the record high thereabouts. So keep an eye on 2046. We're just about $40, $50 away from record high nominal gold prices. We'll keep an eye on gold. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, on the stock side of things, the meme stocks are apparently back again. I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing, but GameStop shares are up 24% on much heavier than average daily trading volumes. Currently, again, up $3.31 to $16.78. We're still down 9% for the year so far, but this spike over here just in the last couple of days has been massive for the move overall. And again, on heavy volume, there's been a pickup in terms of the number of mentions on Internet messaging boards. And of course, earnings are coming up, Kelly, next week on December 6th. So there seems to be this kind of resurgence heading into year end. Not sure what that does for the bullish market narrative, but take it for what it's worth. GameStop building on yesterday's big gains with a 24% gain today. I'll send things back over to you. That's surprising. We'll talk more about that later, and perhaps it's a perfect segue for us to talk about Charlie Munger. Dom, thanks. Let's turn now to the sad news of his passing. Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway's vice chair and Warren Buffett's right-hand man, has died at the age of 99. He played a key role in the company's rise, helping Buffett build Berkshire into an investment powerhouse. Buffett said in a statement, Berkshire Hathaway could not have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration, wisdom, and participation. Here's a look at Munger's legacy. Charlie Munger was best known as Warren Buffett's right-hand man, their investing partnership dating back decades. I would say that every time I'm with Charlie, I've got at least some new slant on an idea that, that causes me to rethink certain things. And, and we've had absolutely, we've had so much fun in the partnership over the years. It's been almost hilarious. It's been so much fun. Buffett credits the Berkshire Hathaway vice chairman with teaching him the importance of paying up for high-quality businesses. When he 
wean me away from the idea of buying very so-so companies at very cheap prices, knowing that there was some small profit in it, and looking for really wonderful businesses that we could buy at fair prices. It's not that much fun to uh, buy a business where you really hope this sucker liquidates before it goes broke. The willingness to pay for quality paid off for Munger and Buffett in deals like their 1972 purchase of C's Candies and their decision in the late 1980s to buy a substantial stake in Coca-Cola. Before his Berkshire days, Munger owned his own successful investment firm and practiced law. In 1962, he and a group of attorneys founded Munger Tolls, now known as Munger Tolls and Olson, a very prominent law firm. Munger, like Buffett, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and as teenagers, they both worked at Buffett's grandfather's grocery store, but not at the same time as Munger was seven years older. It wasn't until Buffett was in his late 20s and Munger was in his mid-30s and living in California that they were introduced to each other by mutual friends. We had dinner together in 1959. In five minutes, Charlie was rolling on the floor laughing at his own jokes, and I do the same thing. They began to spend hours each week on the telephone, talking investments, and Buffett urged Munger to trade in a career in law for one in investing. I met Charlie, and he was practicing law, and I told him that was okay as a hobby, but it was a lousy business. <laughs> so he, he Fortunately, wanted... I listened. <laughs> From 1962 until 1975, Munger's investment partnership produced a 19.8% compound annual return versus just 5% for the Dow. It wasn't until 1978 that Munger formally joined Berkshire as vice chairman. But Munger's even-tempered, risk-averse, and pragmatic approach to investing was a major influence on Buffett from the time they first met, helping Berkshire Hathaway grow into a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate that owns well-known businesses like Dairy Queen, Geico, Hellsberg Diamonds, and Burlington Northern. Munger, however, didn't limit himself to just Berkshire. He was chairman of Wesco Financial from 1984 until 2011, when it was totally assimilated into Berkshire. During those years, he was known for his deadpan humor and straight-shooting style at shareholder meetings where he interacted at length with his investors. After Wesco, Munger moved the show and his growing collection of fans to another company where he remained chairman, The Daily Journal. Charlie? Yeah? One of my favorite lines from you is you want to hire the guy with the IQ of 130 that thinks it's 120, and the guy with an IQ of 150 who thinks it's 170 will just kill you. You must be thinking about Elon Musk. <laughs> he brought his blistering one-liners to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings, too. What I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily, there's a large supply. And professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it, it's, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. Charlie's big on... Lowering expectations. Absolutely. That's the way I got married. My wife lowered her expectations. And despite a net worth of around $2 billion, for Munger, money wasn't everything. All you succeed in doing in your life is to get early rich from passive holding of little bits of paper. And you get better and better at only that for all your life. It's a failed life. Life is more than being shrewd at passive wealth accumulation. Well, with that, we're through.
Becky Quick, who has covered Berkshire closely over the years, sat down with Munger just two weeks ago for an extensive interview ahead of his 100th birthday. Munger said he didn't think Berkshire would ever get to $100 billion in size, much less several times that. He attributed their success to being a little crazy and a little less stupid uh, than most other people. Another factor, living well into their 90s, which gave him and Warren a much longer time to deepen their experience and become wiser as investors. Munger was also proud of Berkshire's $160 billion cash pile, something that puts the next generation of leaders in a great spot for potential acquisitions. Let's get more on Munger's legacy now and what his passing means for Berkshire shareholders with two longtime CNBC voices who are also veteran Berkshire shareholders and knew Charlie personally. Joining me now, Bill Stone is Chief Investment Officer at the Glenview Trust Company and Bill Smead is Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management. So I have to come up with something other than Bill S. Uh, to talk to each one of you and really appreciate you both joining us today. Bill Stone, what are your thoughts? Well, obviously, it's sad. And I will certainly, as I go to the meeting again uh, next year, miss his uh, wit. And I think even more maybe is his candor. I always think of the differences. You know, you, you really always knew where Charlie stood on things and obviously brilliant mind as well, because um, just, you know, blathering out something is not great. Um, but he certainly knew what he was talking about. Whereas, you know, with Warren, you have to listen a little closer because he's usually going to wrap it into a story or a much nicer kind of analogy um, to take the edge off a little bit. But I kind of enjoyed the uh, the uh, the little more edgy part that certainly made it uh, fun. Didn't we all? Any concerns, Bill Stone, about being a Berkshire shareholder with this passing? No, obviously it's a loss when you lose, you know, one of the two greatest investors of probably all time. Um, that's that's not the good thing. Uh, I think the the thing that is a consolation is um, maybe two parts. One is, you know, Buffett even says he kind of now has worked with worked with Charlie for so long that he would know what he was going to say probably before he said it. Uh, and you still have Buffett. And lastly, you know, it, it obviously points that eventually that's going to happen again. Um, but I think, it, you know, the firm has changed. It It is what Buffett has said, which it's built to last. You know, they've already turned the small amount of money into a very large company, uh, and you don't need the two greatest investors of all time to run it anymore. Uh, I'd like it again, but, but you know, it's kind of maybe this is stealing a, you know, a, a monger thing. You can't be too greedy, right? You, you can't expect uh, to duplicate that again. Bill Smead, uh, what would you add? Well, Charlie and Warren have been the greatest investment teachers of all time, and we are, uh, we hate to lose Charlie because the difference between Charlie and Warren, they're both incredibly witty, but uh, Charlie doesn't care who he offends in the process of uh, uh, laying out his logic. And that, that uh, political uncorrectness of Charlie was very valuable. Uh, you, you know, he, he, he was the Solomon uh, of the business world for the last 40 years. And, and Warren knew it. Warren is a brilliant guy, but, but he likes to be liked. And so, you know, when climate change comes up, Charlie would say, well, why don't we build a seawall? And no, no, nobody else thought of that. Uh, nobody brought it up. Just, and, of course, it's way less expensive than what we're doing. But anyway, you get the idea. Yeah, no, he, he had this. And again, it kind of comes from the confidence of his deep learning and his experience. You know, he doesn't just say these things as in an uninformed way. He says it kind of pulling on all of these different sources that most people aren't taking the time to read or look at. Yeah, he, he's a scientist. He was a scientist, a mathematician, an architect, and a Harvard-trained lawyer. 
Yeah. So I, I'd use the example at the end of 21, he said, this is the biggest financial euphoria episode in my career, which we now know is 75 years, because the totality of it. Well, as a Harvard trained lawyer, you've got to unpack that word totality. And the way we like to look at it is those 1% interest rates created uh, the, the tulip mania in th stuff like crypto, which you know how much he hated crypto, mm -hmm. and, and then memes. And we just saw Dom was talking about memes today. That's still going. We still, we're still in the mania combined with the South Seas bubble, which was a massive growth stock bubble, both of which came out of massive uh, federal government monetized debt. And guess what? It, it, that's where we are. We've and got I, 11. I, yeah. I, I thought it was interesting also, Bill Smead, that even as a lot of the times his criticisms of Bitcoin and things like that, you'd think, well, you know, the guy's in his 90s. But he wasn't a Luddite. I mean, in 2008, he made this big investment or he spearheaded Berkshire's big investment into BYD, which is a Chinese electric vehicle company that only in the last couple of years has really gone mainstream. I mean, he held on to that for 15 years. There were periods of time that, you know, regulators were after them. There were periods of time their sales were down. They were underperforming. And he liked the fact, and that's why his comments about Tesla are interesting. This wasn't somebody who just had a knee-jerk reaction to new things as being um, unpalatable. Yeah, he, he was very forward-thinking. And again, those multidisciplinary view of the world grounded heavily in economics. He used to always say, invert, always earn invert. My, my econ professor in college said that economics was the most like physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And Charlie was always thinking about the opposite reaction. And that put him ahead of the game all the time. Yeah, no, I do it at home sometimes. We can't solve a problem. I say, well, flip it around. <laughs> what would the opposite be? How do you solve it? He was, he was great at psychology and obviously from that great at investing. Uh, same question then, Bill Smead, to you. Uh, implications for you as a Berkshire shareholder? Yeah. We'd like to see uh, Todd Combs and Ted Wessler emerge and understand a lot more about their outstanding investment discipline. I know they're outstanding investors. They wouldn't have got hired. Uh, but, but to me, it seems like it'd be good for Warren to bring up a couple of alter egos because uh, that's a big void. Charlie's going to leave a big void because he had a huge intellect and, and uh, you know, 75 years of experience. So that, it's probably a two-person fill. Yeah, no, and there are some great podcasts from the past year. So actually a couple with the Nebraska Furniture Mart um, that both Todd and Ted have given if people want to go get a sense of them. But again, you know, very smart people, but very different from Charlie and Warren. Uh, Bill Stone, what would your last word be, especially for those who question whether people will ever be able, and I guess in some ways you guys are following in their footsteps, but be able to truly replicate the success that they had? I think that's a tall order. Like I said, I don't, I wouldn't be too greedy about that. I, I, I I do think there's a good chance that at least you can keep the 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 culture in, in intact and make it what I love about the company, which is they're not going to give up uh, or, or they're not going to take a, an extra risk that might sink the entire firm just to earn slightly extra. Um, and that is valuable, you know, in this world. It, it's the place where you can actually own a large percentage of Berkshire and sleep well at night. Uh, it may not necessarily outperform all the time, but you could feel good about it. And I think that can continue. And, and uh, um, you know, I think 
again, its financial strength also with all the cash that it'll be able to buy back shares if it has to evolve into doing, it already has been doing it, but doing even more of that. Um, and time will tell. It'll be interesting to watch. Bill Smead, you, we've talked about how you guys were in Occidental, which then became something that Berkshire was, of course, very involved with. Same kind of question for you, but the question extends both to Berkshire, but also to other investment professionals trying to replicate their success. What do you think that looks like today? Well, f- First of all, you, you don't try to replicate their success. You just try to create some success. You, our job is to meet an economic need. And, and that's what we're trying to do is to create wealth for people that have investments in common stock. Uh, but but uh, uh, Charlie said at the most recent annual meeting that he thought that the stock market would be, do relatively poorly the next five to 10 years. And then Warren chipped in and said, you know, if I were running smaller amounts of money, I think I could do just as well as I always did. <laughs> and we love that because compared to Berkshire Hathaway, we run much smaller amounts of money. <laughs> so it made, it made us feel good about attempting to uh, keep our discipline going. That's a great point. Guys, thank you both. Really appreciate your time today, those reflections. Bill Smead and Bill Stone joining me for a look back at Charlie Munger's life and legacy. For a closer look, be sure to tune into our CNBC special, Charlie Munger, A Life of Wit and Wisdom. That's tomorrow, airing at 8 p.m. Eastern. Next hour, we'll also speak with Gamco Investors Chair and CEO Mario Gabelli about the impact Munger and Buffett have had on the investment community. Look forward to hearing his comments and thoughts. That'll be around 2 p.m. Eastern on Power Lunch. Meanwhile, we've got another development in the sale of the Dallas Mavericks. Contessa Brewer with the latest. Contessa. We are now hearing from the Adelson and Dumont families. Let me just explain. Miriam Adelson uh, is the widow of the late Sheldon Adelson, who founded and was the CEO and chairman of Las Vegas Sands. The news yesterday that she would sell about a 10 percent um, or at least 10 percent of her share of the company for about two billion dollars in order to fund a majority stake in uh, purchase of the Dallas Mavericks. The Dumont families, that's Patrick Dumont, who has is the son-in-law of Sheldon and Miriam, and he is currently the president and the COO of Las Vegas Sands. We've just received this statement from the Adelsons and the Dumonts. It says, in part, the Adelson and Dumont families are honored to have the opportunity to be stewards of this great franchise. Through our commitment and additional investment in the team, we look forward to partnering with Mark Cuban to build on the team's success and legacy in Dallas and beyond. They go on to say that they want to win. They want to have a team that proudly represents the greater DFW area and serves as a valuable member of the community. Here's why this may matter in the bigger scheme of things, Kelly. They've been trying to get Texas to legalize gambling there for years and have spent millions and millions of dollars, both the family personally and Las Vegas Sands. When you go in and you invest and you put down roots, you're basically demonstrating to the local community leaders that you're here to stay. And I I think that the intent would be to coax them into um, being their partners in the move to try and get gambling legalized in Texas. Las Vegas Sands stock, by the way, off by four and a half percent today. It's negative for the year, which basically means investors are totally discounting the fact that there has been this rebound in Macau and in Singapore that has been worth watching and noting as well. Uh, Contessa, remind me, the Mavericks, who's selling the stake? Was it Cuban? Or- Mark, Cu- Mark Cuban, but he's going to retain some ownership of the team and he retains operational control. So he'll still be running the Mavericks. And then it will be the Adelson and Dumont family who are the majority shareholders of the team. That provides them a bit of a carrot and a stick yeah. when, it go, when it goes forward to this whole gambling license thing, too. Uh, no, your point is well taken and where that's probably going. And it's interesting to see Cuban selling uh, down part of 
his stake, leaving Shark Tank and yeah. obviously kind of looking towards uh, spending more time, as he said, with his sons while he can. For now, thank you, Contessa. We appreciate it. Sure. Our Contessa Brewer. Coming up next, cuts, catalysts and concerns. We'll ask Bank of America's top U.S. economist about his read on the consumer and whether today's GDP report solidifies his prediction of a soft landing. Plus the action, the story and the trade on three bellwether names for different parts of the economy. It's coming up in earnings exchange. Here's a look at markets as we take a quick break. Dow's up 115 points right around session highs. S&P up 9 to 45.63. NASDAQ up 13. 10-year note sinking to 428. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The latest Q3 GDP reading this morning shows the economy growing at a much faster 5.2% annual pace versus the 4.9% estimate. Stronger than expected business investment, government spending the main drivers, inventory growth contributed as well. And speaking at the DealBook Summit earlier today, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon said he's worried about the sustainability of last quarter's growth rate. I just think we've made a lot of mistakes, and, and so... But, the, but the, let me just caution you on the economy. When people look at the current economy and things are going good, stocks are up, and we've had a little bit of, uh, of drugs injected directly into our system called fiscal stimulation, the largest we've ever had in peacetime, and QE, the, the, the largest monetary stimulation, two different things, different effects, but they are drugs running through the system, and they create this kind of sugar high, and we're in a sugar high. I don't know if it's going to end in a soft landing or something like that, but when people say, well, corporate profits are up, this is up. Yeah, corporate profits are up because people are spending a lot of money. Where do they get the money? The government gave it to them. Well, of course profits are up. You know, when they stop spending money, corporate profits will go down. So I'm a little worried that we're in that little bit of a sugar high and we don't understand it. We've never had QT before. I think it may bite more than other people. Well, my next guest is a little more optimistic. He still sees a soft landing in the cards, says the Fed is, Fed is done hiking regardless. Joining me for more is Michael Gapin. He's head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Securities. I don't mean to put you up against uh, Jamie. At least he's not your boss, uh, Michael, but, you know, still. Uh, I thought those comments were quite interesting. Why, why do you have a little bit more glass half full take on things? Well, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree that the economy is in a sugar high per se. I think, yes, if you look at the Q3 uh, GDP data at 5.2 percent. You think, wow, things are roaring, but um, and they were in that quarter. But I do think some of that is is more of a one-off, and there there are reasons to suspect it, that the economy is going to to moderate. So yes, I, I would agree with him in the sense that some of the growth has been driven by fiscal policy um, as as well as prior monetary policy easing. But we've been tightening policy for a long time, and we're engaged in quantitative tightening. Um, and fiscal stimulus is likely to, to run its course. So we just think the consumer balance sheets are strong enough. We, we think that the labor market will hold up enough where some of the outperformance in 2023, which was driven mostly by the consumer over the course of the year, will keep the economy out of recession in 2024. So we look for a slowdown. Yeah. And we do have concerns about a sharp for drop-off in activity, but I don't think we're seeing that yet. One more, then I want to ask you about the Fed, but it's mm -hmm. interesting that consumers writ large seem to almost share Jamie Dimon's view of things, where you look at the consumer sentiment data, the expectations number has been very bad. There's still the majority of people expect that we're going into recession. So he's, he's picking up on something out there that maybe the data can't tell us, but people's instincts can somehow tell us of, you know, this hasn't, chickens haven't yet come home to roost. I think there's some truth to that, and, and I think it's fair that the 
there's a difference between somebody like me who looks at the aggregate statistics and then looking at the position of an individual household where, where inflation matters a lot, where the cost of home ownership and higher mortgage rates matter a lot. So food and energy prices tend to reflect more strongly on, on sentiment. But in the aggregate sense, you know, last year we added millions to, to the workforce. And that means greater growth in overall income so the economy consumption as a whole can keep growing. So I do think that there's, there's a gap between what the individual household feels and what the aggregate household feels. And I think what the narrative could be as well, what if the labor market slows down? What if labor demand slows down? Then, then that, that negative sentiment could take hold and you could see a sharper pullback in consumption. Not our baseline view, but certainly a risk uh, we're watching. Right. It's sort of we we all know that once that, you know, if or when that happens, game over. But in the That's meantime, right. you know, so right. you think either way the Fed is done hiking and the first cut is June? Yeah, that's right. We do. Uh, so certainly the the I think like you've been hearing from some Fed members this week, the data since the November meeting have, have gone in the direction of softer growth in economic activity, slower employment growth, and some diminishment in, in inflation. Is it enough to get them cutting in early 2024? Probably not. But I think the messaging will shift from hawkish holds, hey, we didn't hike today, but we could, to you know a, a world where more of it's, it's like a dovish hold. Things are moving in our direction, but it's about enough confidence before we start cuts. And, and for us, that means you know, probably you're getting cuts around the middle of the year, although if, if activity falls off more sharply, you'll get them sooner. Um, but I think it's that hawkish hold to dovish hold transition that we're in right now. I know that they know intellectually they should bring down the Fed funds rate if inflation keeps falling, but I still doubt they would do it for that reason. I think it's just really hard to explain and communicate. So what do it you is. think is going to happen with the inflation rate? You know, do we stall out here? Does it move down more sharply? What do you think? I think relative to where markets are, we think inflation comes down, but a little more slowly. And that's mainly because what's, what I'll say what's left in the disinflation process to get it all the way down to two is disinflation and services. And if you look back in time, services never has deflation. Services prices as a whole never really fall. Um, they just rise more slowly. So I think we're at the harder part right now where we need to get services inflation down. And we think that's going to take longer. We think it still happens. And we think it does open the door for a gradual, cautious cutting cycle of communication issues aside. Um, but I, you know, we have it getting down to the Fed's target by the end of 2025, uh, but still being slightly above 2%. Um, at, at that time. So directionally, we're the same, but we have things coming down more slowly. No sugar high here, just a, a steady protein <laughs> diet. Everything's going to be fine. Michael. That's right. Mediterranean diets over <laughs> here. <laughs> Fish and vegetables. Thank you so much. Appreciate it today. Thank you. Michael Gapin with B of A. Let's get to the housing market now where falling bond yields mean lower mortgage rates. Let's get more on that figure, plus whether it's helping to spur more home buying. Diana Olick here with the latest. Diana? Well, Kelly, mortgage rates fell last week for the fourth time in five weeks, and home buyers do appear to be responding. Demand from current homeowners to refinance, however, fell sharply. So last week, the average rate on the 30-year fix fell to 7.37% from 7.37%. 
7.41. That's the weekly average from the Mortgage Bankers Association. And rates have come down about 50 basis points in just the last six weeks. Mortgage applications to buy a home rose 5% for the week, still 19% lower than the same week a year ago because there's just very little for sale and home prices are not just rising, but the gains are actually getting bigger. Applications to refinance a home loan plunged 9% for the week and were just 1% higher than the same week one year ago. Now, mortgage rates now are still 88 basis points higher than they were a year ago, but most current homeowners refied when rates were at record lows two years ago, and as a result, there are just very few who can now benefit from a refinance. Rates have not moved all that much this week, but the trajectory for now at least does appear to be lower. Kelly? All right. And if 10-year keeps dropping, I don't know, we could go towards 7% or even below soon, uh, but traders aren't there yet. Diana, thank you. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. Coming up, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong has one of the best views into the AI space. Later on, we'll tell you what trends he's seeing and what it means for the whole generative AI race and a lot of the stocks involved. The exchange is back after this. Dow's up 130. Welcome back. Stocks are near session highs, and we have some major news in the health insurance space. On the deal front, Cigna is sliding nearly 7% on a report from the Wall Street Journal that it's in talks to merge with Humana in a stock and cash deal. Humana initially popped on the news but has also since turned lower. This also comes a couple weeks after reports that Cigna is looking to shed its Medicare Advantage business, which hasn't hit profit margin targets. Still, the combined market caps of these two companies would be in the range of $140 billion. Could raise some eyebrows at the FTC if Cigna does pursue the deal. Coming up, Salesforce having its best year in over a decade as they benefit from the AI boom. But Kroger and Cracker Barrel are down since Jan 1 as deflationary concerns stalk the food and restaurant space. We'll get the numbers and narratives on all three names in earnings exchange. And before we go to break, let's do some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. And shares of GM are surging after the automaker announced a $10 billion stock buyback, boosted its dividend and reinstated full-year guidance after the conclusion of the UAW strike. The shares are up 10%. CEO Mary Barra telling Squawk on the Street she's now squarely focused on the road ahead. Welcome back. Earnings season rolls on and we're looking ahead to results from Salesforce, Kroger and Cracker Barrel in today's earnings exchange. Our trader today is Quint Tatro, Jewel Financial's founder and president. Great to have you along, Quint. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on Cracker Barrel. But let's start with Salesforce, whose shares are up more than 70 percent this year and on pace for a fifth straight week of gains. Oppenheimer writing enterprise demand is slow but stable. Analysts want AI monetization strategies and sales growth following various price hikes. It's expensive, you say, but you're still a buyer? Yeah, Kelly. First of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Uh, analysts want that. And I think investors want that. And what that is, is that top line uh, growth. So, you know, it's not a cheap stock. It's trading 24 times forward. Um, EPS projections are for a growth rate of about 16%. Uh, the whisper number today is $2.12 on about $8.7 billion in revenue. But make no mistake, what we want to do is we want to see a blowout of that revenue number. And we want to hear that it's coming from basically their AI suite of products, their cloud base, their AI chat, uh, those sort of uh, you know tactics. We want to see that pay off, maybe their acquisitions, et cetera. Um, if we get that, I think w- the investors will, will certainly take the shares higher. Uh, but the Benioff's already done a great job of cutting costs. And so I, I anticipate we're going to see a strong bottom 
uh, in the EPS number. But if we get that strong top line, I think this has an opportunity to, to uh, head back to all-time highs here. Wow. I mean, the EPS, uh, the, I'm sorry, the forward multiple is only around 26. So it's, you know, I've seen worse. I feel the, the ghost of Munger stalking me as I say that. But still, it's not, you know, incredibly overvalued uh, here. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff will join Kramer tonight on Mad Money to talk about those results around 6 p.m. Eastern. We look forward to that. Let's move along to Kroger because the shares hit a two-year low just a couple weeks ago. And they're only 3% above that level right now. Evercore is talking about consumer strength, food prices, maybe some progress in Albertsons could eventually result in 25 to 35% earnings accretion. But Quint, this, why has this been such a tough stock? What would you do with it? Yeah, it's been a tough stock because this is a traditionally a very low margin business. And when you see input prices increase like we have over the last several years, uh, those profits are squeezed and, and it's hard to pay a, a high multiple for something like this. This is not normally a stock that we would be attracted to, but I am attracted to this this stock. And make no mistake, it's also because I have three growing teenage boys in the house and <laughs> we're at Kroger almost every day. So it's nice to own you know, what you, what you pay for or what you spend money on. But nonetheless, a whisper number here, 94 cents. It's still not cheap. It's uh, 10 multiple uh, you know, trading and, and low single digit growth. But our view here is as we see inflationary pressures and input prices come down, I do not think that's going to translate to lower you know, grocery prices, which means we should see margin expansion and we could ultimately see uh, profits increase. And that would be a, a new cycle for a, a company like this. Also, make no mistake, I think we're going to hear good things about the generic uh, brands, mm -hmm. specifically Simple Truth. As consumers change their buying habits, I think that we're going to see a lot of, of, of movement there, which also has higher margins. And Kroger's also a data company. I mean, they have 8451 in Cincinnati. They're doing a lot of incredible things on data analytics, hmm. which also I think is, is going to boost uh, profits in the future. So I'm a buyer of Kroger down here. They need to get you an investor day. I haven't heard this much enthusiasm. How many gallons of milk are you guys going through a week now? We're on like four. A lot, yeah. a lot. Uh, you know, a couple of gallons of milk, lots of meat, lots of eggs. Right. Uh, it's across the street from us. So we're there regularly. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Cracker Barrel, which is up 12% in November, but still down about 20% this year. UBS is watching customer traffic amid some wet mac macro weakness concerns on sales and margins. They're saying the chain's loyalty program and promotions might be necessary to keep tables full during a downturn. Are you a buyer of this one? I'm not, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think anybody from Wall Street is is going to a Cracker Barrel because if they were, they would see that they are packed. Yeah. I'm in central Kentucky. They're always packed, but it doesn't matter. This is a company that fundamentally is in some trouble here. I mean, their debt uh, to equity ratio is quite high, uh, very heavy debt load and only twenty five million in cash. But Kelly, even if they turn these things around, they're paying out 95% of their earnings in their uh, dividend, which you know on wow. uh, you know on the surface looks great. Oh, look at that dividend! But this is a a dividend trap. This is a value trap, in our opinion. And any strength here, especially the last little movement we've seen, I would use as an opportunity to sell uh, this name. I would not be in Cracker Barrel here. I didn't know it was almost a seven percent on that dividend yield. So a note of caution for others who might be enticed. 
Quinn, we'll leave it there. Great Thanks so much. Biscuits. Yeah. Great biscuits they have, for <laughs> and sure. And fun toy. My parents just brought back some toys for the kids from there. Yes. Right. Always busy. Can't beat the checkers. That's right. <laughs> Quinn Tatro of Jewel Financial. We appreciate it. Still ahead, NVIDIA is by far the outperformer in the SMH ETF this year. It's more than tripled amid all the AI hype. Can the fundamentals possibly justify the share move? According to CEO Jensen Wong, they absolutely can. We'll tell you what he said about the future of computing at DealBook this morning next. NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong speaking at the DealBook Summit today. Just the latest in a slew of high-profile appearances he's made in recent weeks, including at all the big uh, tech cloud conferences. And he's pounding the table about the new era of computing that he says is just starting. Deirdre Bosa joins us now for today's Tech Check. Deirdre? So, Kelly, without a doubt, Jensen Wong is the most in-demand, most popular figure in tech this year. The only other person that comes close is Sam Altman. But Wong himself has been to... Washington to speak to lawmakers. He's been to Taiwan to meet suppliers. And he's been on stage at every major mega cap, mega cap cloud and AI keynote. Here he is the deal book in New York today. You can't solve this new way of doing computing by just designing a chip. Every aspect of the computer has fundamentally changed. And so everything from networking to the switching to the way that the computers are designed to the chips itself, um, all of the software that sits on top of it and the methodology that pulls it all together, uh, it, it's um, uh, it's a big deal because it's a complete reinvention of the computer industry. And now we have a trillion dollars worth of data centers in the world. All of that's going to get retooled. That's the amazing thing. We've got, we're in the beginning of a brand new generation of computing. It hasn't been reinvented in 60 years. This is, a, this is why it's such a big deal. It's, it's hard for people to wrap their head around it. Um, but that's, that's the, um, that was the great observation that we made. Is it includes a chip, but it's not about that chip. Yeah, NVIDIA is known for its chips, but really it's the whole ecosystem that NVIDIA has created that has made it so dominant in AI. And as Ben Thompson's newsletter put it this morning, he who controls the GPUs controls the universe. It's a play on Dune. And that maybe explains his appearance at Amazon's AWS yesterday, that's the first time, guys, that he has been at that event. Kelly, it came amid speculation of growing friction between the two companies. Amazon has been pushing its own in-house AI chips, while NVIDIA is moving on to Amazon's turf, offering cloud computing services of its own. But for now, they still very much need each other. And the bottom line here is that the generative AI arms race it is creating new competition and alliances all across tech, and we're still not really sure how it's going to shake out. I'm curious, Deirdre, what he means by kind of this line that, that data centers need to be rebuilt, computing needs to be totally different. Yeah, so he is referring basically to the compute power that is needed to build these generative AI models. As we know, it's enormously expensive. So a lot of the companies building in this space, they need the infrastructure that the hyperscalers provide. That's Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, their cloud units, they need to update all of that infrastructure, which means billions and billions of dollars in extra capex, which they've either done or are embarking on now. And many of them, all of them actually, need NVIDIA GPUs. So what was interesting about yesterday is that while Amazon sort of trotted out Jensen Huang and NVIDIA's chip saying that it's going to get access to the latest generation, right after Jensen Huang left that stage, they came up and introduced their own chips, not introduced, spoke about their own chips that are supposed to be, you know, as capable as NVIDIA's, an alternative to those GPUs that are so 
hard to find right now in supply. And Amazon is saying, look, we got lots of them and we'll use them in our cloud infrastructure. I can't wait to see how this all shakes out. Uh, but in the meantime, Same. it's nice to hear his take on, on just how significant a change this is. Deirdre, thanks for bringing that to us. Our Deirdre Bosa for Tech Check. The yield curve remains inverted, but the spread between twos and tens has significantly flattened. And that flattening is a buy signal for muni bonds, according to one analyst. We'll tell you where the opportunities are next. Plus, we're just a week away from CNBC's work summit, the promise and peril of, yes, AI. We will hear from experts on how it will transform the future of work. Is your job going away? You can hear what they think. Scan the QR code on the screen there or visit CNBCEvents.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. While it's been another rough year for muni bonds, some investors are sensing opportunity. Muni bond mutual funds just posted their first week of inflows after 11 straight weeks of outflows. And my next guest likes some real estate and healthcare parts in particular. Joining me now to discuss is Jennifer Johnston, SVP and Director of Muni Bond Research at Franklin Templeton. Jennifer, welcome. Top level, what's going on in muni bond land these days? Thanks for having me. So we've seen a lot of money on the sidelines right now. A lot of people have been trying to take advantage of high uh, money market instrument rates, those types of things. But we really think now is the time to get into munis. There's several compelling reasons. Uh, the first one is that, you know, we've seen spreads um, tighten. However, spreads are still above where they were before the 2022 sell-off. So there's still a lot of opportunities for additional tightening. Uh, second, uh, we think that um, that with the tax equivalent yield, which is takes into advantage, takes into account the advantage of the tax exemption, um, you're seeing yields on tax exempt, tax, taxable equivalent yields, um, 80 basis points above corporate IG, 200 basis points above Treasury. So now is the time to to get into the market and take advantage of that. What is the deal with the flattening flattening yield curve uh, being a help here? So we don't usually, whenever the treasury curve inverts, we don't always see a flattening on the muni side, but we have this time. And we think that's going to be the trick to get everybody back into the muni market is when we start to see um, a more flat um, uh, yield curve. And why is that? Um, well, I think it's just keeping in competition with the volatility around um, kind of what the Fed was going to be doing with rates. Mm -hmm. um, people were worried and felt that you were going to see rates rise on the short term side. So that's pushed up rates on the early part of the curve. And we talked about health care, maybe multifamily, mass transit. These are some areas that for people who are poking around, maybe they should be looking here. Well, I think that um, right now credit quality is pretty stable um, in the sector as a whole or the asset class as a whole. We have been watching uh, healthcare in particular. There have been some challenges on the fundamental side because of the cost of employing contract nurses to keep up with demands. We've seen some of that um, come back a little bit and operating margins are starting to stabilize to improve. Um, there's still a ways to go, but we're starting to see some stabilization in that sector. And then on the mass transit side, you know, no, you know, everybody's heard the issues with return to office and the fact that this is um, hampered on uh, transit. Uh, and we've always felt that this, that what was going to get transit back on track was a combination of, you know, differences in, um, you know, scheduling of probably fare box increases or increases in your ticket and then support from state and local governments. And this past budget cycle, we've seen some of the largest states 
uh, provide aid to some of these mass transit systems. So it's True. not over. They've still got some other work to do, um, but we're starting to see that support we've been looking for. All right. People are sniffing around looking for opportunity. Jennifer, thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Thank you, Kelly. Jennifer Johnson with Franklin Templeton. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.